This episode is dedicated to the people in Ukraine currently being invaded by Russia. There are a bunch of devs that I've worked with directly or indirectly in and around Kiev. And while I'm on the other side of the world, I'm doing what I can to raise awareness as to what's going on. Shout out to a few of the other shops who have taken proceeds from their game sales and sending them to the relief efforts for families in need out there. In particular, 11-Bit Studios taking over $800,000 in from sales of this war of mine. Now... Hit my music. On episode 28 of the Game Developers Podcast, Out of Play Area, as GDC 2022 kicks off live for the first time since all this madness started, we welcome Alan Blaine, a good homie and a principal technical designer at Bungie, whom I had the great benefit of working alongside of down at Rockstar San Diego on Red Dead Redemption 1 and 2, as well as GTA 5. Big shout out to Bungie for getting this one cleared in time to promote his talk to GDC going live this Wednesday, I believe, entitled 1,000 Hours of Difficulty, How Destiny Builds Systemic Challenge. You know we're going to get into it and break down how he did whatever it took, whether it was programming, writing importers, breaking down systems to claw and scratch his way into the industry at Z-Axis where he worked on Thrasher. Then when he went over to Westwood, when it became part of EA, where he worked on Earth and Beyond, and then getting in at Rockstar where he worked on the Warriors in Toronto. We'll definitely get into it and talk about what life is like at Bungie as a principal tech designer. And of course, get into the craft that is tech design and what we do. Please welcome a neighbor out here in Seattle by way of California, Alan Lane. Let's fall out. Bienvenido, bienvenue. Welcome to the Out of Play Area podcast, a show by video game devs for game devs where the guests open up one-on-one about their journey, their experiences, their views, and their ideas. No ads, no bullshit. Join us as we venture far out of the play area with your host, seasoned game designer, John Diaz. My game time for non-Destiny games is like 7 o'clock to 8 o'clock in the morning. Drink my coffee, finish up my daily chores in Animal Crossing. <laughs> my wife and I have not missed a day at Animal Crossing since the pandemic started. The game came. What? I visited family last August and my wife stayed here to deal with the cats. And she played those three days for me in the morning. I'm down to the point where I'm just harvesting fruit and doing my Nook Miles chores. And then every month or so we replace a villager with another villager. But like every single day, like I do not have a streak like that. Even when I was heavy into WoW or EverQuest, where I play every day for uh, a year and a half, almost two years now. It's closing in on two years. Yeah. yeah it's pandemic. closing in on two years. We got it in like, uh, I think March 25th or March 26th because I grabbed it going like, Hey, I bet my wife might like it. She doesn't normally play a lot of video games, but this yeah. one she might connect with. And who, boy, did she connect with Animal Crossing. <laughs> Damn Nintendo, man. That's yeah. cool. So that, that's a game that you guys share. Yeah. I know you were big board gamers together, but it's nice that she has a digital game that you guys share equal responsibility on. More than equal responsibility. She spends way more time dressing up houses and doing all sorts of stuff like that. I'm in it for like the shared feeling, but I'm like, I don't care if I dress properly every day. My dress style in Animal Crossing is whatever the villagers give me as gifts, I'll just throw it on right away. I don't have a, an actual style. So it ends up being a mishmash of random things and random colors that they happen to give. Yeah. What are you drinking? I am drinking Vucare, New Orleans 1930s cocktail, rye, cognac, sweet vermouth, some bitters, some Benedictine. Benedictine. It's a real nice drink. It's got some spice to it. It's a little sweet. 
I remember when we were rolling around the gas lamp district, you were mm. the guy that put me on to like old fashions. Uh-huh. I think I had my first old fashions rolling around with you. And it seems like a nice evolution <laughs> in that direction. Back then, that was like 2012, 2011, 2013, mm-hmm. that time frame. Mm-hmm. My cocktail palette was still just starting to develop. Yeah. I mean, I still enjoy a good old fashioned and whatnot, but like now I'm like, I could probably make drinks every weekend and probably not make a duplicate for probably an entire year, right? Like I've got a well-stocked bar and can cook up all sorts of interesting cocktails. We got into making some infused gin over the holidays. So I have about half a bottle of cranberry infused gin sitting in my storage to make Christmassy and wintery drinks. Obviously now it's getting a little past the cranberry time, but yeah, it's good stuff. Coming off of beers, that was kind of what we did, right? Hitting up Mm -hmm. D Street and drinking whatever was on draft. My beer intake these days is pretty minimal. I discovered I had an allergic reaction to hops. Get so out I have, of to, here. I have to be real careful about heavily hopped, like anything like over like an IBU of like 30 or 40. Okay. Like I can maybe have a half a beer and I'll be all right, but I have to really like go, okay, if I'm going to have a full IPA, I had to be like, that's all I'm drinking for the night. I'm drinking water the rest of the night. And like, that's just all I'm having. Otherwise, uh, my stomach is not happy at all. That's a hefty price, <laughs> man. It's messed up how the body betrays us after the years, right? After so many years of abusing it in our 20s and early 30s, <laughs> it, it decides to fight back. I suspect there's a lot of stress that we went through in those days. Because, mm. you know, day in, day out, a lot of stress. The body, like, marries that feeling of stress with those flavors and those tastes, right? And goes like, here's what I'm going to start negatively reacting to those things that you were enjoying in those times when you normally felt stress and go like, I'm not going to have those anymore. Like, I don't want those anymore. Your body makes these connections. There's a saying that somebody put out there and it's kind of really resonated with me was like, drink not to feel better, but drink when you're already feeling good kind of thing. Yeah, I think that would have kind of alleviated that. But it's crazy because, you know, when you when you're stressed, there's this kind of connotation of like, let's blow off some steam. Yep. Let's go unwind however we choose to. Depending on the situation you're in, there is like what it takes to get through the day sometimes, (laughs) right? Yes. It's not good. Like, you know, and I, and I think we're both in a much better place mental health wise than we were back then. But sometimes you say like, this is where I'm in right now. I'm not, you know, I'm not in a place where I can do anything about the situation. So I just need to get through it. Yeah. I mean, a decade ago, mental health wasn't even really a notion. It wasn't out there in media publications. People weren't really talking about this. Yeah. We certainly didn't focus on it the way we do now. And it's definitely good that we do. It's been a huge learning experience for me trying to figure out how to deal with day to day, having good mental health and good sort of work-life balance. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, we didn't have a great work-life balance, right? Like we did some fun stuff on the nights and the weekends, but, you know, it was also a lot of work hard, play hard level stuff, right? Which doesn't always make for good work-life balance. Talk to me about taking time and being able to put together a GDC talk. We got to put a 2021 panel together talking about tech design, which was awesome. I had a blast helping to put it together. Wouldn't have been anything if you didn't participate in that with a few of the other people on the panel. That seemed to light a bug in you. Hell yeah. Because now GDC 2022, what's going on? Yeah, I definitely think I'm going to be trying to put together talks for GDCs going forward. This talk grew out of an internal talk I gave. Essentially, we we built the difficulty system for nightfalls and raids and lost sectors over the last few years, and I'm continually iterating on it. But it was mostly me doing the work day in, day out, a lot of the early part of it anyway. And as we started bringing more and more people online, I started having to really formalize the design philosophy around the difficulty system. 
Whereas I had internalized it and I could talk with people about it, but I'd never written it down in a way that somebody could use as a guide without interacting with me, right? So like it was sort of the tribal knowledge and we documented the what's, but not the why's. So then as we started handing it over to, to more people to extend, they need to know the why is not just the what. So they can make intelligent de design decisions that maintain the core pillars going forward, right? So I needed basically write down the core pillars. At the same time, I saw a lot of discussion in our community about what we were doing and why we were doing it. And some of the information was like spot on. And some of it was like wildly speculative. I'm like, okay, they actually don't understand what we're going for with this. And so it was just, a, I wanted to get it all down in front of me and go, here's the entirety of the system. And here's yeah. all the inputs and here's all the outputs and here's why we do these things, which is what I'm giving a GDC, which is like, let's just lay out the whole system for people that aren't internal and talk about the decision-making process and the development process that led us to focus on various aspects of it and launch at the cadence we did and then sort of tips and tricks on how to do that. And it's kind of funny because in the talk, there are a couple of avenues that I don't go down where I go like, I can walk you down this avenue, but that's a whole nother talk. I could walk you down this avenue, but it's a whole nother talk. And I'm not the person to give either of those talks. Like these are people that I work with that provide me with a whole swath of new and interesting things to talk about. But those aren't mine. What's the name of the talk? A Thousand Hours of Difficulty, How Destiny Builds Systemic Challenge. That's a great name, right? Like it's like, what thousand hours of difficulty? Like how the heck do we scale that? How do you systematize right. that? Like that. Years ago, uh, some of the Halo devs from Bungie gave a talk called 30 Seconds of Fun. And so it was a play off of the 30 seconds of fun of like all of Halo and Destiny is built on like taking that 30 seconds of mm -hmm. fun and stretching out to full missions. So a, a lot of the Destiny missions or strikes or rage or dungeons, stuff like that are really fun. This talk is about how we take this really fun activity, which uses all the principles about encounter design and activity design to make one, you know, 15 minute, 30 minute, hour long experience amazing. And how do we actually go like, how do we build four or five versions of that with the starting data in a way that doesn't take hundreds of hours of dev time in a way that takes like hours of dev time, right? That's what we're looking for. We're looking for something that people can play for, you know, hundreds of thousands of people can play it every week. And we spent... 10 hours total on it because we already had a really solid first activity. Then how do we transform it into something that is engaging over the long run over multiple difficulty levels? So, you know, you could choose what you're ready for, what's accessible to you right now, what your gear level is at, all the different things that boil into it, who you can get on the player with you right now. We want that kind of setup. So you have multiple levels of difficulty to play. And that's where the thousand hours of difficulty came from. I remember studying, it was around 2004, 2006, around probably, I don't know, Halo 3 time or something like that. And yeah, that 30 second gameplay nugget or the core game combat loop, that really yep. was something that at least some of the teachers I was with at the time really latched onto, right? And it's, like, yeah, mm -hmm. this is the thing that your game just built, at least gameplay wise, right? It's right. like this 30 seconds and then give the in, the out, and let them repeat this and master this and make this engaging, right? You can still see that all the way through stuff you see in Destiny 2 that's, you know, command Witch Queen. We can still see that 30 seconds of fun and that DNA of Bungie mm -hmm. is coming through all the way through from the last 20 years into what we put out like every three months now. 20 years, man. That's a good run for the studio now. now. Now under the Sony umbrella, for, first from mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Microsoft, then Indie or, or kind of partnered with Activision. And yep. Activision's under Microsoft, and then you guys are partnered with Sony. Yep. Wild times, man. Wild times. It's pretty wild. Yes. <laughs> it's pretty wild. Nice. Witch Queen. Witch Queen's coming. Oh, Witch Queen is out by the time this episode airs. How was that? 
Witch Queen's going to be fantastic. I, I am like stoked about the narrative. It is building up a confrontation with the villain that we've been building up for, I don't know how many years. Her brother was the main villain in the first expansion of Destiny 1. And so there's been indications that she's been pulling out a lot of strings and a lot of the narrative beats over the last few years about what's going on. And she's finally in the forefront now. And so like actually having to contend with her is absolutely amazing because she's the queen of lies. She is the trickster god. And so like having to deal with her after all the things she's been in disguise, walking among us, all that stuff. It's really fantastic. But of course, my team doesn't work on anything related to the story or the story missions or anything like that. So I, I get to see it halfway in as a dev and halfway in as a fan. I'm, I'm really looking forward to it. That's a good segue. You are today a principal tech designer at Bungie. Talk to me about what a day in the life is like. So principal tech designer is the IC branch of how you move up, right? So at a certain point in your developer life cycle, you have to make a hard decision about whether you want to be a manager or a person that checks stuff in, right? And certainly you can hybridize and it always gets uncomfortable. Certainly at Rockstar, I was doing both, but you struggle with it, right? And so as you get higher and higher up, as the projects get bigger and bigger, if you're going the manager or creative leader role, you're going to be doing less and less sort of daily work. I'm in a position where I can do 50% creative leadership, 50% IC, which is nice yeah. depending on the, depending on the week, I might be fixing bugs or looking at a new tool to build or sort of aligning across the studio with what we want to do for trials of Osiris, our PVP offerings. Right. So I'm consistently a hybrid. My first job in the industry, I was a designer slash programmer, like on my business card. So I've pretty consistently been a hybrid. I sit uncomfortably in that, like I need to be doing creative leadership but I don't want to only do creative leadership. Mm -hmm. I need to be working on like day-to-day, -day, like having meetings with other designers, figuring out what their workflow should be like, but I don't only want to do that. And so I kind of do both. So it really depends on the week. This last week, I just spent most of the week working on our, our internal sort of newsletter that we put out every week called the TWAB or This Week at Bungie, where we talk basically talk about upcoming stuff. We went into a significant amount of detail about the rework of Gambit, one of our PVVP game modes that we do. And so I was working with community managers all week long, sort of working on like, Hey, here's what we want to talk about. How do we tell people about it? What, what do we need to show? How do we, how do we go about talking about this? Right. There was a bunch of time working on that, which is full on creative leadership level stuff. Like the work that we did on it was months in the past, right? We checked the last thing in three months ago, but it's coming out. And so we actually have to talk about it now. We have a community summit every once in a while where we bring members of the community and show them things that are coming up in the game. Like not stuff that's coming out next week, but stuff that's going to be coming out three months or six months from now, get their feedback on it, talk them through it. You know, it's an easy way to sort of really get some feedback from them on how players are going to react to this, what we need to do and what changes should we make? And so I spent an hour talking with community members just to talk to them and go like, if we do this, what are the important things that you want to hear as a player? So for example, Gambit, we have done uh, community summits for Gambit before. And it was like, I laid out like all the design goals and then all the iteration, all the things that we're going to do. And each one, they'll have questions about it. Same thing will happen when we put the game out. People will do this and they'll post about it, Twitter, Reddit our forums and get feedback that way. This is just a way to get that feedback early yep. so we can go, actually, maybe we should make a change here. Yeah. And that's the, where the real valuable stuff is. We can actually make changes before the game comes out. 
mm-hmm. based mm-hmm. off of how, what the community thinks about it. I spend a bunch of time working on PowerPoint deck, showing all the stuff, getting pictures, getting screenshots to show what it might be like, that kind of stuff. Cool. I mean, live games, right? The the mm-hmm. necessary evil of interacting yeah. with the community and listening to them and taking their feedback in. I love the community. I, I really do. Like I spend a bunch of time every day on Reddit and on Twitter, looking for community reactions and stuff that my team is working on. The general game too, right? Because if you hear, sometimes you hear grumblings about stuff that people aren't happy about and you might be have, have some control over, like push it to get something done. Definitely don't hit me up though. I'm not changing anything if you if you DM me on Twitter. <laughs> I that, imagine. Not, that's not the right avenue. I, I need to process what I read and sort of think about it. Yeah, I imagine you guys have some type of mechanism for community engagement, right? Oh, like yeah. getting you all that information and, and metrics where that you don't have to kind of individually go. I'm reading it to try to grab like the, the vibe of it, but we have amazing player support and community managers that do most of that work. Yeah. I'm just, have you ever seen Clockwork Orange, Sean? Yes. <laughs> right. I feel like reading Reddit, I'm like, I'm like, you know, holding my eyes open, just letting the waterfall of like, of information kind of come through. That's what I feel like sometimes. So, you know, normally when we give feedback in the studio, we try to give constructive feedback, even if we're slamming something, even if we're yeah. like, this isn't good, mm-hmm. we got to start talking about why it's not good and how you can approach it, how you can fix it and stuff like that. And it should be a real positive, constructive conversation, right? When you say constructive feedback. What do you mean by that? Like feedback in any nature, right? Is like, I don't like something or it sucks or it's awesome. So constructive feedback a lot of times is you start with the assumption that somebody is trying to do their best. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like that is the base assumption. So if you always come from that place where you're, you're making that assumption that somebody is earnest in what they're trying to do, you can have a discussion about what you didn't like. Specifically, Mm -hmm. a lot of times you don't want to come from the, like, I didn't like this one aspect, but like, I didn't like how it made me feel right. So that, so you got to bring in the sort of like, not the thing itself, but the emotional reaction to the thing that it sparked in me, right? Because you don't know why they put it in. You have to assume they did it for a good reason. So there's a reason they did something. And so you want to just say like, Hey, when this happened, this is how it made me feel. If you can do that, and I'm not great at always doing this. Sometimes I'm a way too blunt in my feedback. <laughs> That's where it starts because then you're talking about the intent of it versus the thing itself. There you go. Right. And so like this thing that you did, I'm open to that thing, even if I don't like it right now, uh, as long as it doesn't trigger these negative reactions from me. Right. But I'm not going to hold something like if you don't change this, yeah. I'm going to continue being angry at it, which I've not always done very well in my career. I've gotten way better at it. There you go. That's where I start is I have to like think about not the thing itself, but the thing and the reaction that provoked in me. And then maybe a suggestion for how a thing that would have solved the problem for me, right? If you would have done this, that, that's not always necessary. There's always a nice thing. You can go like, this isn't the solution, but like if it had done this instead of this, I don't yeah. know if it meets your goals, but like this would have made that problem that I had with it go away. And as a design lead, you have to go yeah. like, I'm happy to hear your goals, but you know, a feedback session isn't the right place to solve the problem usually, right? That's a great line in the sand to draw, right? Is worry about solving and solutions in another forum or medium. This one is just about getting all the sentiment and everything right. listed out. I like that in this role as a tech designer, 
what I heard you say is that you get to still live in documentation and putting pictures together and PowerPoints, yep. and you're in there interacting with the community as well as the things you would imagine a tech designer is involved in, right? Like yep. tools and pipelines and workflow mm -hmm. improvements. And then, you know, on top of that, there is an area of management and leadership. So you're pretty well covered and spread out into all these quadrants under the design umbrella. How do you go about protecting your time, right? So to allow you to do all these very important things. As a manager, I basically have a half hour sync once a week with all my reports. Nice. Weekly? Weekly half hour sync in the before times when we all met in person at the office. We would do hourly once every two weeks. But I've found that the more often touching base and lighter touches, so it's less stressful. If you miss a week, it's not that big a deal. If, you, if you're doing only every other week and you miss a week, it's really bad because then you're a month before sort of yeah. having a sink. But yeah, lighter touches more often. If that helps me react quicker if something is going wrong and I need to I need to jump in and help out. That's worked really well. And I try to schedule them for, you know, before the start of the workday, essentially, you know, like nine, nine thirty, you know, I'm eating breakfast. Let's just have a chat. Like it's mm -hmm. not a big deal. Let's like what are you thinking? What are you working on? What are your problems? Like what's stressing you out? How are things going at home? How are things going in your life? Especially during COVID, people struggle for yeah. all sorts of good reasons, right? Sometimes don't have anything to do with your day-to-day -day at work, right? Yep. But sometimes if you can find a way to help your reports have an easier time at their job because of their stresses at home day-to-day -day or something's going on in their life, that's always a good thing. So I mm -hmm. always want, I, I try to touch in, touch base. And so that's protected time. For my IC time, I have a three-hour meeting from three o'clock to six o'clock blocked out five days a week. Hey. And it's called IC time. So nobody can add, or it is hard for people to add meetings during those times. It's often not IC time, but it is time that I can work on whatever needs to be worked on. So sometimes mm -hmm. it's bug fixing and adding features to the tools, or sometimes it's like, no, oh, I really need to work on this PowerPoint or this documentation. Yeah. Heads uh, down. But like three to six every day, because if you don't, it gets eaten up by meetings and then you'll have like half an hour and then another meeting, a half an hour and another meeting, and you can't get anything done in a half an hour without, you know, that focus time. You have to take 15, 20 minutes just to start focusing. And then you're in another meeting by the time to get there. Yeah, that's a great call, right? It takes some time to ramp back up to being in that zone, right? And yeah. doing kind of your best work. I like that, man. I'm going to definitely plus one that to people listening is block out your time. Don't feel bad about it. Protect it, throw it in the calendar so people know, especially where everything is a meeting and it's virtual. Right. And, and I'm with you. I find that to kind of ease into the day, right? Get all the meetings out of the way and all the hypotheticals and conversations and one-offs and then kind of hit your stride after you've had some lunch or whatever. And it's like, mm. I right, focus on some things. You could always tell people that like, I'm struggling finding a time to have a meeting. You can be like, just do it at four o'clock. Just, you know, like uh, you could, you can give them that time, yeah. but they're not allowed to schedule it without your permission, which is what I like. There right? you go. Force them to reach out to you. Otherwise yeah. it's between 10 to 10 to three and actually two to three is play test time. So it's really 10 to two. Do you guys do daily play tests? Well, we have a pretty strong play test philosophy. My team is running play tests on whatever content we need every day, but Friday, two to three. And so if that's a PVP play test or a lost sector play test or, you know, what have you, we have lots of different stuff that we have play tests for my team responsible for, but we, we have that time blocked out basically. That's awesome, man. I love seeing that. I love seeing a healthy gameplay slash design team or whatever culture, right? That it kind of has this mechanism where every day people are going through the cycle of grabbing latest and greatest, getting it loaded and just kind of everybody knows like, Hey, this time we're playing it 
together. I think that's a great culture to have at any development house. And it always surprises me when I see places that just get very far removed from the game, that they're not actively installing it, but, oh, I haven't sunk in a week or so, or, you know, I've been crashing forever, so I just kind of haven't touched much, you know, I've been focusing on this. It's always kind of a red flag to me. I mean, there's places that still thrive like that, but I like to hear frequent playtests and it's part of the team. One of the things that our game director last year, Joe Blackbird, did was he put a meeting on everybody's calendar from 10 to noon on Fridays. That's like retail playtime. Like we have a live service oh. game. And so everybody at the company, and obviously some people go like, I don't need to play today. I need to have a meeting. Yeah. But most people are playing and we have active like Teams channels where people are looking for groups of stuff to do on Friday retail playtime. Uh, and that's a really great thing when you're running a live service game, get people time to play the game live like a player does right you will get better ideas and better responsiveness out of those people if they're given some time now you know i I play a lot more than that but like those two hours i play those two hours every week it's really important time for everybody to play and as a lead you need to always try to exhibit good behaviors and if I'm skipping that playtime and people understand i'm skipping that playtime then they'll feel more pressure to skip that playtime also Yeah, be a good role model. People will copy you whether you intend to or not. Hey, my lead's not in there. Then I guess the the expectation is that I'm not in there. I'm working on something. Yep. This is something that I used to do all the time, especially for the first year or so of the pandemic. I I basically would tell tell everybody on like a social channel Mm -hmm. and my team, like, hey, I'm out for the night at six o'clock when I logged off, you know, because I work from nine to six, take an hour long break, but I try to keep very strict eight hour days. Yeah. Like I log off at six o'clock and I want people to know I'm logging off six o'clock. Like you're not expected to be here. It's not like your lead is staying until eight or nine o'clock every night. And so everybody's like, well, are we allowed to leave? Obviously when everybody's working from home, it's not quite like that, but yeah, I want to exhibit good behavior. And so I'm, I stopped doing it because I didn't feel like people were responding to it socially, which is fine. Like I wasn't getting that feedback of like, Hey, good night. Talk to you later. See you tomorrow. Yeah. But then I heard from some producers that they missed that. They felt like that was a huge positive. So I started doing it again. Like. I basically want to go like, hey, I'm logging off. Here's my work-life boundary. Six o'clock, I'm logging off. And I'm telling you, I'm not doing any more work tonight, right? And so it's okay if you do that too. Like, Mm -hmm. here's what the boundaries are. Like, you you are not expected to work ridiculous hours. And in COVID times and everybody's at home, sometimes it's nice to know that because it's really easy to get sort of rabbit holed and end up working until eight or nine o'clock at night. Yeah, definitely. That, that bit me in the, in the butt in the first year, right? It's just like, wow, why do I feel kind of burnt out and I'm at home? Yeah. And it's because I wasn't putting those boundaries and yeah. disconnecting. I like also because, especially on large teams, you own very dedicated portions of the game. Yep. And you're only kind of ever looking at that, right? So having these play tests, especially on retail, I love that you called out that it was retail, is yep. you most likely are guaranteed to learn about something you didn't even know was in the game, right? Or, or totally. even an aspect of the game. When you're doing internal play tests, you're like, hey, I've got a vault full of every single piece of gear in the game and I can add whatever and I can do whatever change. When you're playing retail, you don't get to like change <laughs> the power of your gear. You don't just get to go give yourself stuff. Like there's nobody in our game that has that level of power on retail. Mm-hmm. So it's great to be like, okay, I'm actually forced into the same restrictions players are. Yeah. Right? Yeah. Uh, unlike the rest of the game where you're like, yeah, if I had the best gear in the game and I do this, is this hard? Is this easy? I don't know. Obviously, some players have the best gear in the game. Yeah. Most players don't actually have the best gear in the game, or they might be doing the thing you're doing to sort of as part of their stepladder up to getting the best gear mm-hmm. in the game. I mean, any game that we work on, right? It's easy for the speed of iteration of doing the thing that we're 
in God mode with the most powerful weapons or infinite ammo yep. or whatever, or ghosting through walls and things like this. And then you lose touch with how actual players are playing the game. And then you're tuning right. something based off something very disconnected. Right. It reminds me of some of the Rockstar days where uh -huh. we had to have those conversations. But like, yo, guys, stop playing with all the dev hacks and the dev cheats. Like, play this from end to end like a normal player would. I actually think that was one of the most valuable things I learned at Rockstar was the philosophy of when you start up a Red Dead or a GTA as a dev, you're just dropped in the world like a player. You're not in a special dev world where you're like of a physics thing. You're you like, you're put in the open world. When you go like, I'm going to start the game as a dev, you're mm -hmm. just dropped in the world. And then you have the menu, you have to like figure out what you want to go do. There's no like, I'm doing it to do this special thing. I'm doing like any of those pathways let you skip all of that feeling of what it's like to be a player. And the fact is that almost every dev starts as a player. From the time they boot the game up, they're a player immediately. Even if they're going to hit a debug menu and go launch this mission over here, yeah. in the game as a player, the same thing the player does, and that it starts exposing all of those pipeline issues that you don't see if you never play the game like a player. It starts exposing, like, load times is the one thing, but just, like, how it is if you're like, I got a call for a horse or a car or whatever it is. Mm -hmm. Like, you start having to develop those tools of, like, if I'm going to play in this open world game, I'm going to think like a player, I'm going to feel like a player at all times. I shouldn't be running in some special world where, unless you're doing physics programming or animation, <laughs> like that, where you need like some specific things, everybody else should be like, this is the world. And if the mm -hmm. tools are slow, if the process is slow for doing that, speed the process up. Totally. I can attest to working on a system and living in a dedicated great box gym, right? That right is completely isolated from all the other gameplay systems. And there's the big danger of when you go into the full game, that's when the first time you're seeing all the systems kind of interact with each other, right? Which is the magic of a lot of those sandbox games and Rockstar games. A lot of that magic comes from the fact that the people doing the work actually are doing most of that work in the full sandbox yeah. and like sort of iterating, not iterating in that gray box, but iterating in the full world. Totally. Yeah. There was so many times where I'm interacting. I remember just being in a mission. I don't know, man, like I shoved a ped on the floor and then boom, I wanted already. And I'm like, Gosh, how do I turn this off? Oh, now I got to escape and, and get cleared so everything works together. But then it reminds you to kind of build that in to be like, all right, do I need to be kind of in an enclosed space? Do I have to kind of change the design of the flow so that players don't run into this and it kind of takes them out? Or is it intentional? Should I trigger a mission failure or should I now add it to the mission objectives so that you have to lose your wanted level before you complete the mission? From the person that developed all the wanted systems in Red Dead, <laughs> if the designers are having problems with it. They don't understand mm -hmm. what they did wrong or they don't understand, like they don't have the right UI. It's for certain the players aren't going to understand that, right? Mm -hmm. And so that's feedback to me. Like if you're having problems, even if you just don't have the tools to turn it off or do the right thing at the same yeah. time, you can give me the feedback in real time. You don't have to have a play test to do that. You can just be like, hey, this happened, this happened. And I can go like, hey, maybe I should write a bug up for that. I can <laughs> fix that. All right, all right, give me a week. It's going to be hassle for a week, but then but then I'll fix it. I don't know how you felt about it, but I thought that the culture in that Rockstar San Diego dev floor was pretty fluid, man. Like it was easy for anybody to just kind of throw their hands up and be like, what the fuck? You know, like, why is this happening? <laughs> right. And they're like, let's go have a conversation. You know, like we, yeah. we were very unfiltered and raw about it, but I think, you know, it made, That's it led to some great iteration and great conversations. It, it was certainly organic. There you it go. It's really organic, right? That's the it best was, word for it. It was, it was very much, you could very easily spur a design decision by standing up and start yelling something. <laughs>
<laughs> it was great. Like that's the one time that I saw that half cubicle open floor plan really be conducive to the production. When I first got there in early 2009, yeah. there was a bunch of rooms and, and the, the floors were much more split up. And, and by the yeah. end of production, like all those walls came down and we were just kind of one big open floor. Yeah. Yeah. Trying to think of what would have changed. So I, th I think Rage had its own Rage area. had its own room, right? So they're doing the engine stuff for GTA 4 and they sort of got morphed into everyone else. Yeah. There was still Midnight Club stuff going on. Then, okay. That's what it was. It was more that we were doing multiple projects and then eventually yeah. when it was like it was one, one thing, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Coalesce into Red Dead and then everybody moves over from Midnight Club onto Red Dead. And that was a pretty big cultural shock trying to like incorporate all the, all the great designers uh, onto the team. You know, after we'd been sort of insular, working on our own little thing for so long, yeah. like we pulled in like Ben and all the table tennis crew early yeah. on and then we pulled in midnight club people later and pretty soon it was like the only thing going on at the studio. You have an interesting journey, you know, California, Vegas, Toronto, back to California and now yeah. up to the Pacific Northwest. Yep. Yeah. But you studied computer science. And then yep. as I understand it, you broke in. Was it as like a tech artist? Is that your first gig in games? Z-axis? It, it depends on how how far back you want to go. We can go back before Z-axis even. Z-axis is my first actual true game industry job. Okay. Before that, I had two jobs. One, I was an intern at a little company in Mountain View called CGSD. And they did a lot of, they were small business military contractor. So they did a lot of stuff for like the army and Navy, stuff like that. So I was working on, I started working on textures, building textures for like this sim. Like this is like 94. What do you build the textures in? Photoshop. Okay. Uh, we built some tech to like take satellite photos of real terrain, you know, steps in Russia and like jungles and all sorts of stuff, like top down textures for flight sims, say. Yeah. And like take a photo from a satellite and cut it up in such a way that it tiles. So you don't see that tile, right? Because that's a, yeah. like that's a big deal. And this is like back in like the mid '90s when it was wow. just like real basic level texture. There's there weren't any of the multiple channels, any of the stuff we can do now. It was like real like big polygon texture, yeah, big yeah. polygon texture, so that you could have a flight sim look like it's jungle terrain, look like it's real jungle terrain, not like an artist's idea of jungle terrain, but real jungle terrain. So that's I got started as an intern after my third or fourth year in college as a summer job, essentially. And then I, that morphed into working on level design for, they're working on a location-based, uh, like a Mech Warrior style game. I don't know if you remember the Mech Warrior, like places where you could go into the pods and it was like, like pseudo VR. Yeah. You're talking yeah. about like in those big physical arcade. Yeah. They well, called it yeah. LBE. It's location-based entertainment, right? Yeah. 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 You say that and it takes me back to New York City and they had a huh? big arcade called Laser Park in Times Square. This was kind of like post-Disney Mickey Mousing of Times Square, the Giuliani yes. cleanup. <laughs> and yeah, that was kind of like some of the best hangouts was going to Laser Park and doing Laser Tag. And then I think for the same amount of money that it costs to play Laser Tag, me and a bunch of friends, we can jump in the Mech Warrior pods and, and run at each other and shoot each other and things like this. So this would have been a game that we would have done the same kind of thing, except it was more like a sport. It was actually more like if you're playing Rocket Arena, but you had airplanes playing Rocket Arena. That's kind of what it was like. It was a little weird. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, no. That's a strong pitch right there. That sells itself. So I, I, I was doing level design for that, like building the, building sort of the landscape that's all took place. Because you're flying the planes over there. Sort of like doing level design for uh, Quidditch in Harry Potter. Like it was sort of Holy like, shit. here's the stuff going on in goals at the end, but yeah. like there's all this stuff going on 
on the outside, but you're mostly flying through the air and really generally to be flying safe at all, there can't be a whole lot of stuff in the air that you're trying to dodge around, right? Just the other, other flying, right? So I ended up working like that. So it was, it was like designing the landscapes you might duck down into the canyon with the okay. ball and then, and then jump back up. That Are you doing that with like static meshes or some type of like white boxing tool, just some primitives or something? We were using primitives and like landscape tools in like 3D Studio Max like okay. a long time ago. Yeah, yeah like yeah, it was yeah. just like build some geo. Like we would start with an image and then we'd extrude the image up with a grayscale and then start adding detail. I've stared at you do your job whether you knew it or not. I never saw you in Photoshop. We were all kind of in yeah. Maya for Red Dead. But like, if I was to look at your resume and I was to see Photoshop and Max, I'd think like, oh yeah, tech artist. Here you go. A lot of the stuff I did early on, you would consider tech artists. I wrote level design tools to solve problems I was running into at level design. I would write like exporters to build new characters, stuff like yes. that. To solve problems I was running into in my personal projects, in my school projects, on the, the first game I worked on, Thrasher, on the first actual game. I wrote like a lighting export. We didn't have lighting in the game. And so 3D Studio Max had like vertex-based lighting on their polygonal levels. And I was building like a third of the levels. And so we needed the lighting because we needed some nighttime scenes and we needed some interesting scenes. So I'm like, I can get the lighting value and plug that into the PlayStation sort of vertex lighting. And like, I just write the tool to do that as a part of our export. That's a like a tech art. John, mm -hmm. yeah, sort of, it was what needed to be done at the time. Do whatever and it no, takes. Nobody else was going to do it. You're going to blow my mind if you told me that you also wrote the Maya export on Red Dead. Yeah, I did. Motherfucker. All the stuff for the designers, that whole interface where you could like set up everything. Yeah, that was all yeah. by yeah. Holy shit, Al. I never knew that. I got to say, thanks. I stole the UI from the artists, right? Like they, the UI panel layout system yeah. they had. I like just cut and paste it because, you know, anytime in code, almost all of it starts out as a cut and paste <laughs> of somewhere else you can modify yeah. it. This is importing this. Yeah, let me just modify it. Even if you've opened up Fortnite's creative mode, we extend those same key terms onto the controller triggers, L2 and R2. So when you're doing layout and design, it's still the same concepts, cut, copy, and paste. Before Red Dead, I had never used Maya before. I'd never used Mel, the Maya scripting language before. And so I'm jumping in. I'm going like, I'm just going to grab this UI. Okay, I don't like this. Don't like this. Don't like this. Delete it. Delete it. Delete it. Okay, here's the level loading section. Okay, now what I need to do is write some importer code here and like okay so here's here's how we limit people how they author stuff and here's how we import stuff and like and just it started from there it was like i remember working with christian and tom on this and we were swapping over to like a script-based system christian kanamesa kanamesa yeah yeah and like then tom we shepherd yeah we were yeah. we were working on like switching over from like a very different sort of authoring system to a script-based authoring system where like everything would be done in script so if you want to create an actor, you would type create actor and then describe mm -hmm. all the parameters of the actor. If you want to create a volume, you type create volume and describe like what all the different aspects of the volume and how you're going to use it, all that kind of stuff. I could see the script today. I, could, yeah. I remember, I think it was spit out. Like, here you go. Here's your header and it had all your functions. So you just copy or paste that in or it's already in the right directory. Chapters in your mission. You just go like do the create for chapter one. And I just call init chapter one and it would set create volume, create flag, boom, all that stuff. And then yeah. we even had the peds, right? We would position. I remember the little like VR, you know, po polygonal meshes of you where you would position <laughs> the your companions or your enemies or even the player. So the hard work of all that was done from like a Thursday morning until like a Sunday afternoon where like Tom and Tom and like Christian had like 
And and I like crunched on all that stuff over like a weekend wow. to get it all in so I'd be ready to check in on Monday. Yeah, just like here's the philosophy. And like there were no like chapters. A lot of the stuff that you know like mm-hmm. wasn't in there now. We just had like base thing where you would spit out a single function that was a description of all the things in the file. And you just go boop and it would write all the script commands that would create all those things in the game yeah. on initialization of your mission yeah. automatically no extra stuff and right so all the other stuff that we did later that was all like once you have that first function you have like mm-hmm. that's the hard part is getting everything in that format now you can go actually we want to split it up by chapters in your mission we want to split it up by types yeah. of things create this squad create this squad create this squad create the flag create the volumes chapter one you can call then you give the power to the designer call yeah. it whenever they feel like it just call this one function it'll do it all for you yeah that's kind of where we landed like we give you a base function they would do everything but then you don't have to call that function you can call something else and you could do it by hand to be like i don't want to create that group of enemies yet i want to wait to a minute right to create yeah. that group of enemies and just hold off on doing that stuff good i was i'm sorry to jump around but this is so yeah. nostalgic for me to this day al even you know working in the real Working on Fortnite being an epic, I've been in a lot of tools, right? Yeah. I've been on Frostbite, I've dabbled in Unity, I've worked in Lumberyard, now known as O3DE. I always look back to the damn Rage tools and I'm like, yo, the power that we had to iterate on games and and second to none, man. And I always look back and I I don't know what, if there was just intention behind those things, what type of conversations you guys had or, or was there a philosophy behind it? The philosophy that we used was to expose as many things in the engine to design as you can. Amen. And then write a layer so that it's easy to use without having all, everything exposed to you, right? That's what I tried to build. So I I would have to deal with all of the functionality and like all the different ways it could be used and misused. And I would try to build uh, mainline use cases for mm. anybody else that covered 95% of their day-to-day uses. They wouldn't have to delve into the details 95% of the time. Sometimes you go, oh, I need this special case thing. I'm trying to do a special thing in this mission. If you don't have that power to do that at all, then the mission is way less cool, right? If you have the power to deal with it, but you don't normally deal with it, you can. And it's a little harder if you're not used to sort of that level of granularity uh, in what you're doing. But that's a one-time cost. If we didn't build that layer in between, everybody would be paying it all the time, right? So it's a mistake to have something where it's hard to actually get something in the game the first time. You want to make it as easy as possible to get something up in first play. Easy, yes. easy, easy, right? Yeah. And you want to make it relatively easy to continue iterating. And you only want to make it hard when they have an edge case where they're the only mission designer that needs this function to work this way, right? Yeah. Like that's when you can make it hard. You can be like, here's a special case, but 95% of the time, you'll never need to do this. You don't need to dig into this documentation here. But like this one time and you're like, oh, I'm in the third pass of my mission and we want to do a special thing. You go like, oh, here's how you do this one special thing. And you actually spend some time on it. But you know, most of your mission doesn't need that. Only this one part of this one mission, needs that extra detail, but you've done all the work for the rest of your mission, not dealing with any of the, like hard to actually actualize details. So it's gone quicker too, right? Because you don't have to, you can iterate quicker, you yes. iterate faster because it's high level for you. I don't know whether you realize it or not, but I believe you just identified the core essence of the value and the key contributions of a tech designer right in there is worrying about making the tools, exposing as much power to designers, and then also putting in the safeguards for the things that would get those one-offs into trouble and things like that. Right. It can be really hard if every designer has to do everything the hard way all the time. 
Like you never want that. <laughs> I, I know we talked about it in the talk, but like I think about it very often as a tech designer and as a design lead, I hate handing something to somebody else to do that I wouldn't do myself. Hate it, right? This workflow is such a pain that I, would, I wouldn't want to do it myself. If I had to do this myself, would I actually spend the time building a tool to make it simpler? Yeah. My instinct is I just want to build the tool to make it simpler. Yep. Before I hand it to somebody else to build. Because I'm I, like, I know, you know, 20 years ago, I didn't know. But now I have the wisdom to, to, to go most of the time and be right most of the time. Not all the time, most of the time. Yeah. Um, to be like, I can see this is going to be a pain point right here. I can feel this. This is a pain point. Just talking, just like reading over the description of something. We're talking about how it's going to be built. I mean, that's going to be a pain point. We want to solve this problem. Let's do it this way this one time and write up a bug, write up a user story for, for a supporting engineering team to actually build us a, a better function here or tech design to build us a better workflow for this. But like, it's okay to do something the hard way the first time. It's not necessarily yep. wrong. It's the hard way. Yeah, the first yeah. time, even, you know, for anybody. But you want to identify that stuff. The stuff I hate is when I hear about a, a team that's been building it wrong the first time for the last two years. Jeez, yeah. I haven't ever spoken up because if there was nothing ready for them that first time. And so they just started doing it that way. And they're mm -hmm. like, well, this is how I know how to do it. Yeah. I might as well just keep doing it this way. If you know it's a pain that first time, write that bug. You might have to do it a second time. Yeah. Especially in a live service environment. There's all sorts of different priorities and, and things. But like, I hate that like two years we've been doing it the hard way for two years. Like if we're doing it that often, we should build something yeah. that's a better support for that. I like that, right? Having those mechanisms and feedback opportunities, right? Like you have weekly one-on-ones. I, I love weekly as a cadence, right? Like, especially since we're, we're at home, we don't get to have right. those kind of by chance walk past each other in the hallway to raise it up, right? You don't have to be annoying about it, but be vocal. Let people know that this is a problem and, and at least there's a bug or use a story in the backlog that enough people have heard about it and there will be time, right? Like there will be time after enough people saying something like, all right, man, we got to do something about it or, oh, hey, we have headcount. We can tackle this now. I also hate, hate being pulled off of something without having had the chance to really dive in and understand how it works and then be able to pass it off with some sort of structure or upgrade plan. I mean, I get it. You know, sometimes depending on priorities, shit gets ripped away. Make sure it's on somebody's backlog, especially if you're interested in it, check back regularly. Mm -hmm. With the team that's going to be working on it or right? yeah. the team decide to, right? Even if they don't have time this quarter or next quarter, if you check back every quarter, they'll get it prioritized for you eventually because you'll be yeah. checking back. If, they, if you keep checking back, they understand that it's important, even if they don't work with you every day, right? Because you keep checking back about this thing, whatever the bug is, whatever the feature is, if you keep asking about it, it's not that you're being annoying. It's you're going like, no, no, this keeps coming up. I need this feature built. This cost us this amount of time. Or because it's not built, it is stopping us from pursuing this avenue of creativity, right? That's That I think is often the more, especially on a live service game, that's often the more likely candidate. You know, we have lots of stuff we do and it's efficient or inefficient, right? And like, so it's, but it's built into our schedule. It's the features that are stopping us from going like, we can't even start moving down this path. Until mm -hmm. we get this first feature, but guess what? We're already a successful game. It's already doing well. We don't actually need the feature, right? So it's always got to be prioritizing. And so the things, yeah. I love talking about tech design with you. It's easy to go down the rabbit hole. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> I got to give the shameless plug for anyone that hasn't seen or wants to learn more, right? On the GDC vault, if you look up 
avoid an identity crisis. As a tech designer, you'll see a panel. Alan's a big part of that. I'm on there moderating it. And we go deep, right? We go high level tech design and we go deep and talk about the stuff. And if you don't have Vault access, you can definitely reach out to us and we chat more. It's a young role compared to all the other disciplines, but it has matured a lot. And it's in big part, thanks to just experience and hindsight, right? To be able to learn from the utility of having a dedicated team or group worry about building these layers and enhancing the tools for designers to make some sweet content. If we could go back to you at Thrasher building tools, doing the things that just needed to be done. This is where kind of you had connected with Rockstar for the first time in your career. Yep. So Thrasher was actually published by Rockstar. It didn't start out that way. It was started out being published by BMG, I think was the precursor to Rockstar. Through music, right? Yeah. So, you know, Sam Hauser was the producer on it and we had meetings with him all the time and they disappeared for a couple of months and they came back and they had a big Rolling Stone spread where they'd formed Rockstar games. This is a really big thing. I was like, oh, okay, that's what I understand where they've been for the past couple of months, where they've been, haven't been like, chatting about the game. So I worked pretty heavily day to day, finishing that with some of the crew from Rockstar, Jamie uh, King, John O'Brara, some of the old school Rockstar crew, like finishing that up. And so that's where I got to know them, right? I was like working with them all the time. I helped man the booth, showing the game to people. That was the competitive E3 where Tony Hawk was at E3, the first Tony wow. Hawk game and Thrasher, both at E3 at the same time. You were going against Tony Hawk. They came out about a month ahead of us. Like it was wow. that level or six weeks, something like that. It was like. There's going to be a skateboarding game that comes out and is really popular. It's going to be one of these two games. <laughs> Damn. We made the sim. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Hey, th there's always room for that, right? The arcade versus the simulation, right? Like the, the Gran Turismo or the Forza to the Forza Horizon or the Midnight Club or the Mario Kart. I played the hell out of EA Skate when it came out because yeah. I, I was like, this is, if we continue building Thrasher with that same sort of attitude and, and design goals, EA Skate's like is very much like in that direction of like, yeah. here's what it feels like. We're actually trying to like be real about the actual sort of where your foot is and like how skating actually happens mechanically. Which feels rock star. It feels very rock star, right? Like their pursuit of realism yet fun, like high level polish. It's not necessarily realism. It's you feel like you're doing the same thing. It's not an arcade. It's smooth. If, if it's going to be hard in real life, make it hard. So you feel like you're doing the same thing. Like make the details actually matter. So, you know, so that like uh, a nolly versus nolly is actually like an important thing. And like how you would do it is different. You have to hold different buttons and you have to do something. Another fun fact that I found out talking to you about this was that you were an electronic artist when you were at Westwood in Vegas. I was, yeah. After Z-Axis, I started at Westwood about six months after they got bought by EA. I left about a year before they dissolved Westwood and like morphed everybody into the other EA studios. So I saw like I was in there for like the middle portion. I wasn't yeah. there before they were part of EA uh, and I wasn't there when they finally dissolved everything. But yeah, I was there for a good a couple of years there. Well, I was working on Earth and Beyond there. And there was a sci-fi MMO that they're working on that I was one of the designers on. Sci-fi MMO. Yeah. So it'd be like your World of Warcraft, but instead of, you know, taking your orc warrior and running around the ground hunting, you know, uh, trolls or whatever, or uh, frog locks, you're in a ship running around asteroids, hunting aliens and pirates and stuff like that. I'm sure that experience had to help a lot on what you do today 
yeah. on Destiny. Yes, absolutely. I always knew you to be a fan of MMO. Yeah, yeah. yeah. I started playing Ultima Online back in the day when I came out with some buds and we played that hard for nine months or so. I did not start playing EverQuest right when it came out. I played dabbled in it a little bit and then I went hard when the first expansion came out you could create a lizard man monk and I said so I played a lizard man monk at EverQuest for a few years like my guild like we ended up a bunch of people I worked at Westwood all had a guild together with you know then extended friends and stuff like that and we played EverQuest for four years pretty much consistently until until WoW came out and then we all transitioned to WoW and like we played for another five years. And and thus ends my, you know, and I played other stuff along the way. Ashron's Call and Shadowbane and Lord of the Rings Online, Dungeons of the Dragons Online and like there's a Conan game, like lots of stuff, but none of them, Dark Age Camelot, I think came the closest. None of them stuck the way I requested World of Warcraft did, definitely. Part of that was because my clan was playing, right? And so it was mm. like... Yeah, yeah, I have social ties to those. Some of those, though, I would pull people over from the clan over into Dark Age Camelot. We'd play for two months and then be like done with it. And we'd morph back to EverQuest and have continued raiding over there. That's something interesting that you touch on, right? It's kind of that like social dynamic of even for live games and the people who work on these games to keep in mind, right? Like where are people sticking to? You know, you may get one player here or there, but they're eventually going to go where all their buddies are. Right. right. Yeah, it's always a trick of if you're trying to take down a big existing product like World of Warcraft, everybody's got existing relationships, yeah. existing clans. Not only that, but like they have five years, 10 years, 15 years of content built up. And so like if you're going to launch something new, you're going to be missing features that they don't have. You're going to be losing content they don't have and all their social contacts are over there. There's a reason why been very few lead changes over the last 20 years in whatever the top MMO is at a given time. Yup. There's a share. huge reason, right? Kind of related, just because I'm seeing all the press, that Amazon Lost Ark is making waves. Yeah. You know, I, I haven't played it. I, I want to check it out, right? Like, but it's making waves in that free-to-play MMO RPG space. And it's got me intrigued, right? Just because I don't know if it's the ads or the marketing or whatever, but I got to throw in a couple hours. My problem is that for MMOs, you got to invest a good amount of time in to get to that point where it's like you feel you're, you're hooked in. Sure. And From what I, I haven't played Lost Ark yet, but what I understand, it's more Diablo-like. So maybe the action part of it, uh, she was a little earlier. That's sort of one of the problems of, especially early EverQuest and UO, was mm -hmm. you're really not very well powered against the stuff that you're going against. It doesn't feel really cool to play. Yeah. WoW gets around that in their early tutorials pretty well, at least they did back when I played, where you still felt a, a decent amount of power versus what you're going up against right there. Yeah, I haven't played Lost Ark yet. I, I'm interested. Uh, I want to play it. I'm always interested to see how developers evolve, how they come and go towards products that really kind of engage your creativity or force you to think in ways you weren't used to working, thinking, here you are working on MMO. It's obviously a big part of your life in terms of what you enjoy playing, which was maybe for the social aspect or what have you. And then eventually you find your way back to being on another development team that's making one of the biggest, uh, you know, we, you guys coined the term shared world shooter. Yep. Uh, I, I, that's a much better identifier of what Destiny is as opposed to just calling it an MMO, right? Because it doesn't have the same player count in an instance kind of thing. If you think about MMOs in a broader spectrum, I don't know how much you follow Raph Koster, who was the designer of uh, Star Wars Galaxies, Ultima Online, 
uh, or one of the design leads. He, he's been uh, MMO academic. He's done a lot of writing and thinking about it. And I remember, you know, I follow him on Twitter. I read a lot of his stuff. And I believe like his current thinking is that Fortnite is like the current sort of MMO hotspot. Even though Fortnite is not an MMO in any traditional sense. Yeah. If you think about the MMO more of as a world that people gather and do stuff in. Yeah. Not as a world where people gather to slay dragons, mm. but a world where people gather to socialize and do stuff. And the slaying of dragons or the shooting of aliens in the face is secondary. Once yeah. you're there, it is more about doing stuff together. That's the important part. Then something like Fortnite really is like, there's all sorts of crazy stuff in Fortnite that I can't even dream of. You know, there's concerts in Fortnite, right? Like the metaverse already exists. I don't care all these companies that you want to keep trying to make it like Fortnite pretty much is the metaverse at this point. Yeah. I'm still working in slowly a couple of, you know, handful of weeks in, I think a month still trying to wrap my head around all the different threads behind that beast. I got to look that guy up. What was his name? Rath Koster. Raf Koster. Yep. That definitely is helpful for me to help verse myself on, right? Because I would tell you that MMO was always an area that I have a lot more to learn about and a lot more time to invest getting behind the scenes on that and, and understanding more about how people approach it and what makes them tick. But it's interesting, right? Like if you break it down to saying a place where you congregate or hang out with your buddies and then right. you do stuff, right? right. After that, you go do stuff. Then right. that makes the MMO thing, it distills it nicely to be like, oh yeah, I can see I have played MMOs and, and it is for that same reason of like, hey, I just want to hang out with my buddies. Right. And then it's secondary, what, what we happen to do. I played some Fortnite myself mm. and I have lots of younger relatives, kids of friends, who play a lot of Fortnite or have played a lot of Fortnite. And when I watch them play it, I talk to them about what they do. They're not going for the chicken dinner. Like that's not even a part of their play style, right? Like they might occasionally do it. They're doing all sorts of other stuff. Like they're not trying to actually win the game as the rules say. They've got a completely different purpose in the game. That's one of the flags of you might actually have like an interesting world to exist in is when people spend most of their time doing stuff that has nothing to do with the rule set that's been laid down by the designers, right? Yeah. They're finding other things to do in that world. And I think, you know, your Minecrafts hold that really well. Yeah. Right? Minecraft. Fortnite does that really well. Obviously all, all the MMOs have generally over the years gotten more gamey, not worldy. And so there's actually less opportunity to, to sort of be creative. That's always the big struggle in the MMO world is like, are you more of a game or are you more of a world? And like, how do you balance those two and what's important to you? And MMOs have traditionally gone more gamey over the years because people who play MMOs tend to be and be loud about it, tend to be more power gamey and want to kill bigger and better dragons for bigger and better swords. Mm -hmm. And so anytime you do that, like game rules come into it and destiny falls in that same category, right? Like we are in the, like, we want to put bigger and better dragons out there for bigger and better swords, even though they're not all swords and they're all dragons that still falls in that category of it's, it's not like, it doesn't fall into the more worldy category where of like ultimate online or some of the other ones like second life, where they're trying to basically simulate a, a rule set for a world and make it much less about like objectives to give the player something to do. That gives me a lot of food for thought to think about, right? Like approaching it from, hey, building a world and then giving you things to do within it or from the other side, building a game, right? right? And, then, and then having a game that's 
big enough for people to, for everybody to have something to do in it as part of a, a clan or a team or something like that. Right. And to circle back around to what you said was Bungie originally coined the term share, shared world shooter and not an MMO when it originally came out. And like, that's what his DNA is, right? It is about shooting aliens with your friends. Yeah. It's a shared world shooter. And like a lot of stuff in the game is, is sort of built around those core tenets. And like Bungie is real big on sort of core values and like really always having like design pillars and core pillars and cycling back with your design decisions. Uh, if you're having, str if you're struggling to make a design decision, mm -hmm. look at how it intersects with your design pillars, right? Yeah. And, like use those as your guidelines to make your decisions and like, and decide what new features should be there and what shouldn't be there. Totally. Great call out for any product or any, anything you're building, but definitely in game design, having some core pillars to fall back on or build out your game or your design and use that as that guiding light or that razor to right. cut against when you're stuck or at an impasse or having discussions to be like, how do we proceed forward? Is like, we'll fall back on your pillars. That can be like player first or something like that, right? Like, yep. does this make the player, does this put the player first? And yep. Going from there. Working at Westwood on Earth and Beyond, what type of design were you doing? I did a smattering of design there. So I did some system design. I did some content design. Like I designed uh, a lot of the drop tables. There was a, a race of hillbilly space pirates that would drop like, you know, a cassette deck with Leonard Skinner in it, all sorts of silly, like sort of just like narrative fluff, right? It wasn't worth anything. We're trying to get across like what their culture is by what they drop when you kill them. When you sift through their ship, the wreckage of the ships, like what you find, we're trying to show off what their culture was. The narrative. Yeah. So I, I built a lot of the drop tables for a lot of the enemy races. I did some quest design. I think I did the Gen Kwai Explorer, like upgrade path quest series. I was in charge of doing all the script script reviews before people checked in, like once we went into beta. So I like, basically I reviewed everybody's check-in on the design department for checking in new scripts. Hey. Every, every Tuesday and Thursday, I'd be like here, my whole afternoon is blocked off so I can review scripts and make sure we're not checking bugs. I did like, I did some crafting design. Like we had a Earth and Beyond had a really cool crafting system, really unique. And I don't believe that anybody's ever done anything quite like this yet, where every item in the game was craftable. Uh -huh. So all of your, your MMO, like drops off of your bosses and stuff like that were craftable, right? If you knew the recipe, how you got the recipe was by taking the drop that you got from the boss and dismantling it. Okay. And you get the recipe. Now you can make more of them, but you don't have the original item to use anymore. Like you have to d destroy the item Ooh. to get the recipe and you have no idea what the, what like the the components of the recipe are usually the components for the high level stuff was like going and killing the boss and getting the, the common drop might drop yeah. like the circuit board that you need to, to make the gun. But if once you get the gun, then you can destroy the gun, get the recipe and now build more guns. And so like it was designed around that philosophy of everything in the game is craftable. Yeah. If you have the recipe, but like you have to go destroy the stuff to get the, the recipe and destroy the stuff to get the component parts. And so like you could destroy everything, make it better, learn the recipes, get the parts. It was the right designed around that philosophy. Yeah, we that wanted that. We wanted that interesting choice of when you got the awesome new gun, mm -hmm. do you use it Ooh, or, break or do you, it. or do you break it and get a chance at learning how to make more? And we 
felt that was like an awesome like decision that players could have. And in fact, if you're like in a raid, and so that's that's not just a you, John, as a player decision. That's a decision for your whole guild because your whole guild had to work <laughs> to get that gun, right? But if you if you learn the recipe, you can now make some for everybody else in the guild. So it's very valuable. You know, you might not always learn the recipe. You might not have the stuff to make the guns. So it's a risk, right? It's always like. Where, where do you, how much risk tolerance do you have? That's a steep price, especially if you got your buddies forcing you to give up this sweet weapon that you right. just got yeah. for the greater good, right? You'd be like, right. hey, this will help us out. Damn. Maybe, maybe for the maybe. greater good. You might maybe. get nothing. <laughs> <laughs> wow. As you were talking about that, I'm thinking of like Breath of the Wild and the way yeah. that I can just burn amazing pieces of food in the hopes that it's a great recipe or it turns into like monster mush, right? And they're like, damn it, you know, now I got to go find this other thing. And the difference being Zelda being a single player game versus right, you have the the peer pressure of your team everything and maybe if you're a game that has a lot of commerce you can now make them and sell them to other people right like there's all there's all sorts of aspects around like that cycle that gameplay loop that i th- i think was really interesting earth and beyond didn't really live long enough mm. to really explore like where that ended up it wasn't didn't give a, a big enough user base to push on and they canceled it after a couple of years i would love to see a bigger mmo sort of take that I, and maybe somebody has i'm just not I've really played an MMO since like I stopped playing WoW. I stopped playing WoW when we were shipping Red Dead. That's the last non-Destiny MMO I've really played. Maybe someone out there picks it up and evolves it into the 2020s or point out if other games use it or have done something similar. Yep. This would have been around the time that GTA 3 or Vice City came out. Yep. And wonder what if they were on your radar at this time or were you like too busy cracking out? They were a little bit. I'd been hearing rumblings when I was in Vegas, but I definitely remember heading back to the Bay Area for Christmas to hang out with friends. And they were like, yo, 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 your boy's a rock star. Totally hit it out of the park, man. They did it. I'm like, what are you talking about? Like GTA 3 is really good. You got to come over and play it. I, at the time, I was, I was more starting to get more into consoles, but I was like a PC gamer all through the like the 80s and 90s. So yeah, we went over to my buddy's house uh, for the weekend and basically just blasted through GTA 3. Common like couch co-op. You get to go until you die. And then you hand the controller over. You rotate around. You can go do jumps in the city. You could play a mission, whatever you want. You die, you hand the controller over. That was like a whole weekend of like play till three in the morning, fall asleep on the couch, wake up at 10, get some coffee, order some pizza, keep going. All weekend long over Christmas break was like GTA 3. And I remember nothing about the story at this point. Like, like <laughs> we played through all the story missions. We beat them all. Mm-hmm. I don't remember anything about it. That was just like this blur of like this just amazing physics engine and cops and like seeing how far you could take your start, how long you were surviving against when the tanks show up, but the oh, helicopters yeah. show up. But you're like, actually, were there helicopters in three? Yeah, or was that Vice City? With helicopters up. It was the tanks, right? The tanks would kind of be yeah. the hardest. Like, helicopters showed up at Vice City. Yeah. But there weren't even motorcycles or anything like that. Like compared to like what we have now on GTA five, like it was like real bare bones, mechanics, <laughs> easy to bare die, bones, guns. Sure. Yeah. Hard to, hard to, to aim. Yeah. Like it was real rough, but it was so much fun. Like we did not care. Yep. It was so great to just explore that world and understand like the mechanics of the cops, the mechanics of the cars, the physics, the gunplay. The exp- exploring the world to get packages and jumps, just everything. Absolutely perfect. Like that was like 
the perfect weekend. It was a magical time. It was totally magical time. I'm sure you would have had a blast by yourself, but it's compounded by the fact that you're with your buddies passing off the controller, right? Just seeing what's possible or having your eyes open by what someone else is doing or the fact that you guys can play it in different ways. Right. You learn a lot when other people play the game and you can watch them. I think that's a thing that we've missed with the, the couch co-op has gone away mostly in the last 20 years, right? Like that's not as common. And I think you lose that watching other people play and telling other people tips and tricks for single player games, right? Yeah. For multiplayer, when you have a multiplayer game, you know, a, a Diablo where you're playing multiplayer or a Destiny or MMO where you're playing with other people, like there's a, a little bit more of a community built up around like sharing that stuff. But mm -hmm. when you're just playing like a game by yourself, home on your couch, like it's easy to get frustrated with something that your buddy's like, no, 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 you don't have to do it. Like if you're playing a couch co-op, you'd be like, just because you got frustrated, give me the control. I'll show you what you did wrong. I was watching you. Yeah. I saw something. I'm going to show you how to do it. That's a great sort of feedback loop that really gets into it. If I'm playing like a, a open world adventure game by myself, there's no feedback loop there. And I have to have some sort of motivation to get through it if I'm struggling with something, right? Like if I'm in Bloodborne, or I guess by the time this comes out, Elden Ring will be out. Ooh. Like I'm struggling with something, right? I need some sort of motivation to get through it. Or I might just go, eh. like what pushes you to actually like do the hard part, right? I am stuck on the final boss of Metroid, uh, the new Metroid Dread. Dread, yeah. It's so hard. I can't, I don't have the extra time for that anymore. I haven't booted up since I did story mode, but like I beat my head against the brick wall of that game all the way to the final boss. Some of the boss fights, I probably failed 80, 90, hundred times just as I'm like, I want to beat this game. This is so cool. Such a great 2d game. And the boss beat me. I had to stop playing. I'm like, I can't do this. My hands are cramping up. Like I can't do this. Yeah. I'm too old for this. Metroid dread has beat. I love games that have kind of a uh, adaptive difficulty. I yeah. think Max Payne had it. I wonder if Red Dead had it. And I think you were a big part of that is kind of building that like, hey, you've died a bunch of times. You can just skip to the next checkpoint kind of thing. Yes, we did build that. So I personally don't like adaptive difficulty. I'm okay with the question saying, would you like to ratchet it down? Yeah. Give you but I'm going to be able to say no. Are you trying to tell me I'm playing poorly? <laughs> <laughs> that's bad feedback. Yeah. No, I mean, that's good feedback. If they're saying, hey, we see you might be struggling. If you can do it in a gentle way, it's fine. But that just makes me angry at the game. Like now I got to prove a point to the game <laughs> that I'm not as bad as I've been playing. <laughs> I was just experimenting. It wasn't really that I was bad. You're like directly cursing the designers, right? Like, what do you mean? I've hit right. that trigger. But now it's trying to do it behind my back, like slowly. Like mm -hmm. without me noticing, if I don't notice, I'll probably be like, I totally mastered that section. That was yeah. totally all me. If I do notice now, I'm really pissed off because I wasn't given the choice to like make it easier. It's a fine line. It's a real fine line. I hate the idea of it, but I'm probably fine with it as long as it's subtle enough that I don't notice. I wish more games went down the route of that Twitch play integration, right? As we talk about couch co-op and, you know, streamers have people watching them but they don't really get to interface, right? To be like, hey, right. pass me the controller. Let me help you. Or here's how to get past that part. Dead Cells did something interesting, right? Where people watching the stream could directly influence the gameplay, right? They can like well, wow. increase <laughs> the drop. Like, hey, I'm, right. we're going to 
to drop you a chest that gives you a power up or some things. And I, I feel like it's untapped. And again, please let me know if I'm off the mark and other games have doubled down on this and pushed it over. But to that missing feeling of couch play and having people share that experience, even though it's a single player game, right? Like, let me show you what you did wrong or let me help you with that. Right. I think is an untapped area in this virtual connected world we're in. I think there's a level of trust, right? There's a circle of trust that you need to be in for that to work, right? Yeah. Twitch, it's Twitch and hard. streamers are, I would say it's probably like you can join somebody's stream without any idea. Like, so by default, like that's a low trust environment. Like mm. those people that are watching your stream and make a comment, unless you know them by their username, you have no idea who they are. And my impression from following a number of streamers on Twitter is that backseat driving or let me show you how to do that <laughs> isn't kindly looked upon. It's not helpful. I hate backseat driving, man. Hate right. It. But hate like if you have that circle of trust, if you're in a high trust environment, like you are sitting on a couch or if you or I were playing, or if we, if we booted up a destiny right now, we're playing something and you saw something me do like while we we're playing, you're like, Hey, why don't you use this weapon instead of this weapon? Like that's a high trust environment. Like I know you personally. And like there's, there's no, like, I understand where you're coming from. Mm -hmm. I understand, I understand where your feedback is coming from. And if you're telling me I'm best to be doing a poor enough job that it rose that level of you actually having to tell me to, to change my weapon or I'm firing at the wrong enemies or something like that, which is fine. I enjoy that level of feedback. If you think it's bad enough, I will trust your judgment and like, let's give it a shot. But I don't know that any streaming platform I've seen engenders or, or even strives to push that level of trust between the streamer and the viewers. It's much more of a, I don't want to say television because it's not, there's a, it's more interaction than that but it's not a couch situation, right? It's very, yeah. it's very much a people at a sporting match in the crowd and then the people on the field playing the game level of interaction, right? Like, you know what it costs you? You're at this, you, you paid five bucks for that ticket to the minor league game. The minor league player out there in the field does not want to listen to you tell him how to play, even if you're right. <laughs> even if you're right, he doesn't want to listen to you tell him how to, how to catch the ball or hit the ball or swing or whatever, right? People still yell it. That's totally fine. That's the value of the money you pay for the ticket. Right. That's you yell yeah, at you, the get to, you get to yell at people that are playing the game. You're working on Earth and Beyond at Westwood and something crazy has to have had happened where you up and leave the sunny desert and you hightail it to the border across the north in Toronto. Yeah, we, we shipped Earth and Beyond and they cut the live staff way down and I was on the, I was on the wrong side of the line. Oh, uh, you on the chopping block, Al. I got, I got chopped. Yeah, me and a number of my friends got chopped. And it's like one of those unfortunate things. It's the only time I've ever been chopped and sucked. I like had to deal with it. Like that was probably the third time in my life where it actually failed something I wanted to do. Oh, wow. Right. So I, I still struggle with failure even now. But like at the time I was in my what, late 20s? And I just sort of needed a few months off before I did anything else to sort of process actually failing a thing I wanted to do. And I very seriously considered like not making games anymore because I'd failed. It was not heavy. That's yeah. huge, man. Like, why did you take that on so personally? Yeah, what You weren't the one developer on the game. Why did I take it personally? It wasn't that I took it personally. It was that I had failed. It wasn't that like the game had failed. Is I had failed to be good enough to stay, which is different, right? Oh, okay. Meaning like, why weren't you one of the ones that got picked to stay? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah, okay. yeah. Like, why was I not good enough? Am I not good at my job? There's that cycle of depression and questioning and imposter syndrome, right? Like, maybe yeah. I'm not a good, like, that was only my second game. 
right? True. I've only been in the industry like four or five years. Like a lot of people burn out in the first four or five years. Before so I took some months off. Luckily, I had enough money saved up mm -hmm. and I had enough money from severance from getting let go that I could afford to take months off. And like, and I actually, you know, moved back in with my parents at a spare house or a spare room in, a, in another house. So like we live, uh, I grew up on a farm. And so like I lived out on the farm, not in the same actual building as my parents for, you know, six months before I like started to pull it back together again, because I needed to figure out like, do I need to actually change careers? Like, is this a different thing? Like I've been meaning to do this for a long time. I did it once. It seemed to go pretty well. I did it a second time. I totally failed. Even though I didn't totally fail. Like I have the perspective now that it's a very natural and normal thing, but <laughs> like common. at the time it was pretty intense feeling sure. of like, is this something I want to keep doing? Do I want to put myself out there to fail again? And I think that's what, that's a kind of feeling that a lot of people have to go through, not just in the industry, but with everything, right? Like as you're growing up in your twenties and figuring out who you actually are and like, what are your priorities and what's important to you? And that was me like trying to figure out, like, I'm not in college anymore. I, I, I was cruising from college into my jobs. And now I'm like, now I'm at a point where nothing is anchored and I can do whatever I want. And so like, what do I actually want to do? What are my priorities? Thanks for sharing that, Al. Yeah. You know, as a game developer, consider yourself fortunate if you haven't been on a canceled project or a shutdown studio or laid off in the middle of a yeah. game where you thought you were doing good work, right? Mm -hmm. the, all the feedback was, you're doing a good job, keep going. And then you get the pink slip or severance package or pulled into a meeting. And oh, yeah. there's times where an entire project or team, but there's other times where in that instance, it sounded like half of the team or a percentage of the team or a it, fraction of the team. It was a percentage of the team and they did it in the worst way possible. What's that? Every Friday for a month, they let a chunk of people go. And so wow. everybody, like for a month, everybody's like, am I going to be on the chopping block this Friday? Like it was very like regular. It was like, yeah, it was, it was really unfortunate timing on a lot of stuff. That's nerve-wracking. I think I was like on the last Friday. My goodness. It's like getting picked for your team or whatever. Like yeah. if, if I make it past this week, I'm good. Yeah. And, and the real kicker was the launch party for the game, because it was a live game, right? Was like the week after. I was one of the first designers on the project. I'd been there the whole time and I got let go like the week before the launch party, the week before the launch. And I didn't even get to like have that joy of like the game launched and everything is going great and you're fixing bugs and it's like you're dealing with launch day pressures and all that, like that cycle of excitement and like terror and all the stuff when you're running a live game. I was like ready to go and then boop. And so I was dealing with that level of process. Like how do I, sure. how do I process like not getting picked to even do that. Cause like, that's the element where like, I'm actually really good at that level of mm -hmm. prioritization day in, day out, debug stuff, like stuff's going live. How do we fix it? What's the quickest way to fix it? What's the right way to fix it? Like dealing with all those problems and juggling all that stuff. I like, I felt like it was about to be like my perfect scenario. And then I was like, Bloop. nope, never mind. Holy cow. Yeah. <laughs> you put on all the hard work to get to the point where it's like, all right, now I'm going to ride this out. The game's going to go live. I'm going to be able to kind of tune it live with the team and looking yeah. forward to that. You build up these expectations and then it's kind of pulled out from underneath you and you don't yeah. even get to go party and celebrate with the team, right? That's shipping a game is one of the craziest and also rewarding things you can do in this industry, right? Yeah. Being able to party or celebrate with your team at a, at a launch party is easily one of the most memorable moments in a project or a team or in life. Yeah. It helped instruct me after like lots of reflection about how to help manage a team, like what makes 
people feel valued on their team, even in the smallest thing, like if you get to be together with your team, make it make you feel yeah. a lot better, right? So there's like the argument for like, can we delay this kind of stuff a week, two weeks, three weeks? In reality, if they would have kept myself and the other people they let go on an extra two weeks, three weeks to get to celebrate, would that have cost them a significant amount of money in the long term? Probably not. Right. Right. And so I've been an advocate for easing those bumps because it does come up in the industry. Like there's nothing you could do about it, but easing those transitions so that people don't feel negative in a way that doesn't have, have to happen. Right. It didn't have to happen. Anytime you lose a job or people leave, mm -hmm. there's going to be like some level of negative, like, but what can you do for people on your team to ease that transition? Right. To, to, to make it so that like, yes, you're not going to be here in two weeks or three weeks, whatever it is, but like. Do you get to celebrate with your team? Do you get to have that last hangout with your team mm -hmm. before you leave? Like there's, there's all sorts of stuff that's really important about the social connections you have at work. The industry is still relatively small. I never quite understood it with when I was at Rockstar because of how insular Rockstar is in a lot of ways. Wasn't a huge game development community in San Diego. It was that's, there, but that's a big wasn't factor. huge. But Rockstar itself didn't ever like spent a lot of time going to GDC and doing all that kind of stuff, right? Like it was relatively insular as a development. But since I've been at Bungie and I've, I've seen all of the people and like people that leave and then come back, and we have a huge backlog of people that have left Bungie for a year, two years, and then come back. And I, I love seeing that. It's because they were treated well, mm -hmm. even when they left. And then they learned what they needed to learn to come back. If you treat your employees well, you could let them go out to the world, get yeah. even more knowledge. Yeah. And then bring that back and then start folding that into your DNA. That's wonderful, Al. I think there's so many things to touch on. You've been doing this for a long time. I like the the path that we're on, right? Is talking about people who get let go, how that's handled, and making a huge difference in the perception of the studio, the publisher, whatever. And and, and that dramatically affecting whether people want to come back and work for you ever again and leading to making you a better leader, right? right. To know what not to do for your team and the importance of it, right? Because it is a small industry yeah. and there's no better compliment of your leadership or your team's culture than to have people that leave and come back. Like you said, learn what they need to learn, try things out differently, scratch an itch, try a different hat, and then find out that they're missing something or, or they're ready to come back. If you want to call out the homie Ryan Parody. Mm -hmm. He leaves as a lead and then comes back and gets to be a director because he learned what he needed to learn and, and was ready to kind of bring that back and then push his career forward. I've worked with Ryan since 2006. Woo! He was fresh out of college, yeah? Yeah, yeah. I was really disappointed <laughs> when he decided to leave Bungie. I was disappointed when he decided to leave Rockstar. Then, of course, I followed him to Bungie a couple years later and then he left a couple years after that. But he came back. <laughs> he came back. Ryan came back. <laughs> he did it to you twice now. Oh, that's awesome. That's all, but he's back, right? Is the he's prodigal, back. the prodigal son parable yeah. or whatever. And of course, I, of course, say yeah, I never see him. I, I work with him. Like I get to have a meeting with him like once every three months. But it's nice to know you can hit each other up on the, what do you guys use teams or something like yeah, that? Yeah. We can, I can hit him up on teams, whatever. And he's in, uh, he's having his wedding anniversary right now, I think. Shout uh, out where to they him go? and Laura. Uh, yeah, he and Laura. Up and I heard the, the Maldives or something. Happy yep. 10 years. Yep. Ooh, some good yep. pictures that I've seen. Shout out to them. What is it like putting a GDC presentation together compared to what we did last year? Where it was all completely virtual. We practiced a bunch together. It was a panel, right? You right. had 
kind of less to to talk about it. We we practice it so well. And again, we had a chance to it was pre-recorded. Right. And then edited and everything after right. the fact. And I think, you know, I don't know about you, but I was pretty damn proud of what we put together last year. It was year. fantastic. I'm more worried about the like, I know I can put this together and then I'm up on stage in front of between five and two hundred people, depending on how many people show up. When you're just talking on video, it's super easy. You're just like, hey, it's John, Alicia, and Rusty, yeah. and, and we're just talking to each other. And it's the person recording. Even though we're giving a talk to all these people who are going to watch it, it's still just us. And we've been chit-chatting and stuff like that. My experience with this talk so far, except for the couple sessions I had with Osama, has been like me working on the deck myself and talking to myself in my head about how this is going to sound. I need to start getting feedback from it. I got good feedback from Osama earlier, but like I need to be like, doing a talk, doing a version of this talk to like other designers at Bungie in the next few weeks where I can yeah. go like, here's my talk. I've got two weeks to fix it. What's wrong with it right now? We don't have that because when we did the panel, mm -hmm. it was all of us giving feedback and right. So immediately yeah. if you're going down the wrong direction, somebody can call it out and you can fix it right there. But I'm just working on it from, you know, 7am to 8am every morning, like toodle, 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 toodle. Is this yeah. good? Is it bad? Like, I think it's good. My intuition is this is good, but like it's a couch co-op thing again. It's the same uh -huh. thing. You've done a version of this talk internally yeah. for coworkers, so that's good. On, that's on video, on video, right? On, on video. video, right? Okay. So this will be my first version of it where I'll be doing it live in front of you. people standing up on. I'm already losing weight because I'm like, oh shit, I gotta get this. <laughs> Al, you gotta practice, man. I hope I, I hope know. you have a way to practice. Good luck, brother. I think you're gonna <laughs> kill it. I think you're gonna have a packed house. It's gonna I be awesome. So. It's gonna fly by. The size of the industry is something we don't get to talk enough about. You, you hear it. I want I want people to understand that are listening to this is you now work with Mailing, yep. who I worked with when I was at Warner Brothers in Montreal. Yep. Years ago. Yep. And and so you guys never worked together. And now here you are. She's at Bungie. You guys are working together. There's a one degree of separation now. We're like through me, you guys are connected or whatever. Mm -hmm. Osama is another yep. former colleague from WB Games Montreal. Yep. And now here he is, he's on like the GDC board and you guys are connecting and talking, putting, putting the, the content together for GDC. Yep. So it's a small industry, never burn bridges. You're going to see each other, whether you know it or not, you're going to yep. see each other again or connect through somebody that knows somebody that knows you. Yeah. If you're a bad actor, that will get around. It might take a while, but it will get yep. around and like, you will not get hired for jobs that you want to get because mm -hmm. you burned a bridge here realize like i worry about like have i accidentally burned a bridge i don't even know i burned by saying the wrong thing in the middle of crunch and you know like don't even realize that i've done something poorly that's always one of those things right the noodles at you in the middle of the night you're like did i because <laughs> you wake up 20 years ago sweats. did i make a did i make the wrong comment in the middle of that playtest session to that person they probably don't remember now but i know i do I think the culture of openness and mm -hmm. feedback, right? Having those weekly one-on-ones and allowing people to be open with each other, right? Like you said, like it's easy enough that you guys are frequently talking and talking about life. It's not just work and it's not just bad news, right? It can be whatever. Yeah. Hopefully puts the walls down where people can be honest. And that way you don't have to spend so much time second guessing or worrying and waking up in the middle of the night. I've definitely had some, we'll call it learning exercises, learning moments, moments where I was able to grow like over like three or four years, the last three or four years, since I've been at Bungie, I've grown a lot Hell yeah! and I, and I can take feedback. There was, there was a moment where I got really upset at somebody, but like, it was at a time where like I had personal stuff going on. 
I didn't realize how much it had been affecting me, but somebody grabbed me in a room and said, like, I don't like, that was a really weird reaction you had without that other person. Like, are you sure? And in the moment I was like, yeah, goddamn right. I'm sure. <laughs> but like over the next hour, I was like, oh shit, I really overreacted before because of stuff going on in my life at home. And mm -hmm. I need to go like apologize to that person. I grabbed them in a room and I said like, hey man, I'm really sorry. Mm. Like I've taken time to reflect on it. I overreacted. Like all of my emotional nerve endings are totally wired all the time right now. And I, in a normal situation, I would not have reacted like that. I'm actually, you know, going to be going to grief therapy, stuff like that to like try to deal oh. with it because I, I did, I didn't mean to react that way. And I'm really, really, really sorry I did. Wow. It was not great. It's hard to do that stuff, but I'm super happy that the person that pulled me aside said, yeah. dude, I think you overreacted. Yeah, way, way to be an ally. Allyship is a big element of a team just being better. Yeah. Right. Like in the heat of a moment, there can be an antagonizer and an antagonist or yeah. giver and the, and the receiver. And those people are in it. And it helps to have a third party be able to neutralize it or come up after the fact and be like, are you okay? Something's up there. Right. How do we help that? Yeah. Big shout out to that ally for being brave yeah. and a good teammate, right? Because he's helping you and the person that was on the receiving end of your ire. And they didn't know if I just overreacted to somebody, they didn't know how I was going to react to them either, right? So they're actually mm -hmm. putting themselves out too. They don't know how I'm going to react to them giving that feedback. But luckily I was in that place where I, I didn't overreact to them giving the feedback, even though I didn't want to receive it well immediately. Like it, right took, me a, it uh, took me some time to, to re really reflect on, but I was still in that place where I could listen. That fight or flight is real sometimes, right? Like yeah. you're just not listening to anything coming at you. Yeah. Good for you, bro, of being able to listen to that honest feedback in the, in the heat of the moment and making some changes off of that. Yeah. That is the definition of growth and evolution, man. Yep. However long you've been doing this, that we could always be better. I mean, I've been doing it for 24 years to the point where I'm like, oh, we're talking about stuff at EA or stuff at like on Thrasher. I'm like, it doesn't feel like a lifetime ago. It feels like multiple lifetimes ago because it was so long ago and I've grown so much and I've learned so much and I don't do stuff like work ridiculous amounts of hours and that kind of stuff. Yeah. It just, it feels like so long ago. Sometimes I have a hard time like actually remembering all the details because it was so because it feels like so long ago you're like oh yeah yeah, that was a is that a different person that that happened that's to? a different life yeah that's a different alan yeah that is a uh, another universe alan for sure <laughs> you're ready to go into the final round and yeah. wrap this up let's do it let's do it all right what's the last game you finished spirit fair it is a like a 2D sort of ship management like community management world exploration game where there's no combat, you're just going around solving people's problems. Like the conceit of the game is that you're taking over from Charon, basically taking people that have died and like taking their souls to oh. like their final resting place. Right. But a lot of times the souls have open problems and things they need to work out. And so you're there to help them work out all of their problems before you basically send them on to their just rewards. I like, like the you, aesthetic. You're on a ship and you're like managing the ship and you're like putting buildings on a ship where you can make, like there's a whole crafting system and like Ooh. you can collect sheep and, and harvest fruit and water fruit and go around and fish and you take your boat from place to place. The vibe is absolutely amazing. Yeah. That's the last game I finished. How much time you put into that? 
25 hours probably, oh, wow. but I did like everything. Okay. Okay. You hundred percented it. You know what? I didn't hundred percent it. Cause there are things that you'd have to like start a brand new game to do. Like there are, okay. there are things where like, if you don't do that by the time you send them on, like you don't have a chance to get that achieved. It's on everything. It's on windows, stadia, PlayStation, Xbox, switch. It's on game oh. pass. If you don't have and game, on pass, game pass, yes, game pass. Yeah. that is the golden ticket, man. The last game I hundred percented was Sable. Also on Game Pass, it's also a non-combat game that's also about world exploration as a sort of primary mechanic. It's got an amazing story, an amazing vibe, amazing art style. It's a coming-of-age story where you're a, a member of a nomadic tribe who everybody wears masks based off of the job they do and based off who they are in the world. And so you're basically sent out on your gliding, they call it, because you have like a special magic thing where you can glide everywhere to essentially find yourself. Find out what mask you want to wear for the rest of your life. And so you can explore the world as long as you want to until you come back. And when you come back, you have a ceremony. You have to pick which mask you're going to want to wear. So you're like solving people's problems, finding masks. There's a crime section where you're tracking down like who committed a crime and where they're at. Uh, but it's mostly about sort of figuring out the backstory of this world. They sound awesome. They look, they have a great aesthetic. Definitely want to try both of these. Thanks for that recommendation. Two other games that I want to shout out before we go okay. that I played on Game Pass recently. So uh, Forbidden City. Oh, I want to get that guy on here. I want to get that guy because that, that development tale was crazy. Oh, really? Mm -hmm. What happened with that? He was like a lawyer. He was, he was oh, like really? a lawyer for his full-time job. And like he quit to go make Forbidden City. And everybody was like, what are you doing? You're crazy. And he did it and he stuck it out. And now he's a developer. And now he's yeah. And it made, made a bunch, you know, it, it's... Totally. Every, nobody, everybody loves this experience. I haven't played it. Yeah. I want to play it. It's got this kind of like mist or what is it that something of the Obra Dinn like solve this mystery yes. and you could tackle it in different ways or fix everybody's world or. Right. There's a mystery and you go talk to people. It's a Groundhog Day game. Yeah. Right. It is a time loop of tomorrow where or... if you fail, you restart over from the same spot with the new knowledge and specific items you keep along with you. Right? Yeah, it's it's got like that Hades feel to it as well, yeah. right? Like there's that level of persistence. But it's a lot of like conversation, right? And so you mm -hmm. basically, it gives you a way to like cut the conversation short. If you've already had this conversation, that basically you go like, trust me, trust me. I already know what you're going to tell me. How the hell yeah. do you know me? Well, you'd never believe me, but I'm a somebody from the future. And I'm traveling back in time every day to do this. And they're like, what the hell are you talking about? Nick Pierce, I hit him up through Twitter or something. I was like, yo, you got to come on the podcast. And he's like, I'm super busy. <laughs> Maybe one day. And I, yeah. I, don't, I, don't, I don't blame him. He's like one person doing this thing. But the cool thing is he's able to do it full time as opposed to having maybe regretted leaving his law degree. Yeah. I actually have a good friend that was a game developer and then went back to law school and is now a lawyer. So flips it around. I mean, that makes sense, right? Like it's hard to knock yeah. the lawyer profession for yeah. everything, prestige and access. Being a game designer is actually a lot about like being a lawyer sometimes, right? They're setting up like rules for a system and interpreting those rules and setting up rules so that people can't exploit them. And how do you deal with people that like exploit the rules? Like there's a lot yeah. of similarities in game designer and lawyer. A lot and, of similarities. Yeah. And being clear on paper, right? And, and, right. and the letter of it being something that's meaningful and can be followed. Yep. And yep. acted on. The last game, Nobody Saves the World. It's from Drinkbox Studios up in Toronto. They did uh, Guacamelee. I don't know if you ever played Guacamelee. Oh, like I love Guacamelee. Guacamelee is like that Metroidvania style. I, I never played the sequel. I think, it's I guess the sequel a, yeah. had 
co-op or yeah had another had another uh luchador that you could play as you could swap between them and stuff so they did guacamole their art director i worked with at rockstar toronto and so i've been always been like grabbing their games it's like a diablo style like dungeon crawler like that's what the game is but the core conceit is that you can change forms at will you're like just a nobody and then you can change it to a knight or ranger and then as you level up your ranger skills, you complete quests and stuff like that to level up your ranger skills. You now open up other forms and you open up other forms. And like, that's sort of the, the core conceit is as you level, you're leveling up your core character and then you're leveling up from, you know, an F rating all the way to an S rating on each of the forms. And as you level them up, those unlock new abilities for your form. You unlock new abilities that other every form can use. And then you unlock new forms that which have new core abilities and then unlock new abilities for them. And. Like it just cycles and cycles and cycles. There's so much gameplay there, but it yeah. comes to the point of like you're like yeah, you have a core, core form where that has a couple locked things, and then all the other stuff is mix and match. And there's damage types, and there's like shields that you have to break on the enemies, and that the dungeons are randomly generated, and yeah, like it's just. But it's got this cool Zelda style overworld. Yeah, it's, I, I, I bet I had to stop playing it to work on my GDC talk in the morning. I, I could just see the spreadsheet fighting itself on this game. That's the thing that scares me because I've done wake up play games before work and it's always bit me in the ass. Was just like, oh shit, I got to jump into this meeting and I, yep. I just want to go one more time. And so I've had to kind of just know myself and yep. block myself from games in the morning. So. I love to hear other people who are able to do it. I'm up at six every morning if I'm lucky. Sometimes it's earlier. No alarm. We have cats. So the cats wake us <laughs> up every morning. Your natural alarm. So I'm up and Animal Crossing takes me 20 minutes or so. And so I give myself an hour to play whatever after Animal Crossing. I'll, if I'm playing Nobody Saves the World or Spirit Fair or whatever, if I've got something going on in Destiny, maybe I'll pull up Destiny. But it's usually at that time of the morning, it's still kind of dark outside. I don't want a heavy combat game. Mm-hmm. Right. And mm -hmm. so destiny and nobody says the world are a little too heavy combat. Like I yeah. couldn't play, I couldn't play Metroid during that time. Like it's too early. Like coffee hasn't started working yet. Right. Mm -hmm. Like I want something a little slower, a little less combat focused, maybe some story, some good vibes, a little exploration, but I set myself up an hour. And so if I, if it's like, if it's like six 30 and I go to seven 30 and then I work out. So I got my bike or I could do ring fit adventure on the switch or whatever. I'm about to get my ring fit back on. I just got my Joy-Cons fixed through yeah, warranty. Man. I'm about I, to get back on it. It's really good. So I so I, I give myself about an hour to exercise before work. An hour to exercise, then grab breakfast and jump on for a meeting or whatever. How do you unplug from the game? That's what I need to know. Like, how do you unplug from the game to get into your exercise? So Spirit Fair broke that for a while. I wasn't doing very well <laughs> Spirit Fair. It was like, you're always at that point where you're like, I could craft this one more thing or like, this fruit tree needs like we're on the ship going to somewhere else like fish that that broke me with anything with levels it's a little easier to be just like i'm gonna constantly check my phone or have a yeah. lot that goes off and says like dude you need to put it down right now i mean luckily with xbox now like most games are like quick resume and so you're just yeah, like no, amen for quick resume i just turn in the xbox off i'm sorry i shouldn't now that we're part of sony i shouldn't be talking up awesome xbox features anymore. it's okay there's room for every console now Quick resume is a lifesaver. It's really good. So yeah, so a lot of it is just like, hey, I might be in the middle of something, but I just need to turn it off. If I, if I don't feel like I can end this in five minutes, mm -hmm. I just need to power it down. Go get my daily workout done and I'll come back to it tomorrow morning and I'll pop it up and I'll be right where I left off. Didn't used to be able to do that, right? You'd be like, mm -hmm. I'm in the middle of this activity. Like if I stop right now, 
I just lost a half hour. So I yep. can't stop right now. That excuse. That's my favorite. Hey, babe, I can't pause. I'm online. It's Fortnite <laughs> or something. <laughs> oh, yeah. What is the last book you read? This was a book called Riot Baby, which essentially is a sci-fi novella about a kid who was born during the 1992 Rodney King riots in LA, 1993, oh, shit. And so because he was born during that time, was imbued with effectively magical powers, but he still lives in our world. Like he's not magical, like in that way. And so like, he's basically in prison, right? Because he's like very different in ways that other people are. Super cool, super powerful. So that's what I'm reading right now. I, let me check my, cause I, I track all this stuff. If you don't, if you don't, no, I use the story graph. Ooh. That is a Goodreads alternative that has a lot more cool features. What words do you have for an aspiring developer, someone on the outside looking in, wanting to come into this crazy industry as a, a veteran who has been in here for 20 plus years? It can be a hard job. It's definitely worth it. That's what you want to do. Like mm -hmm. if, if you want to make experiences to entertain people, like it's a hard, but rewarding job. Like even when you're not working ridiculous hours, it's still hard creatively, like creative work can be very hard work, it's like mental. If you're trying to get in, make games. Like that's the number one thing to do, right? Like if you want to entertain people, you will entertain people. If you mm -hmm. want to do things, if you want to build experiences for people, uh, if it's a board game, if it's a video game, if it's RPG, if it's like you, like people that have that, like it in sort of internal need to do that, find ways to do it. Yeah. Uh, like, and so if you feel like you do, there's plenty of resources online. It's actually easier to start building your own game right now than it ever has been with unity, unreal finding an engine is easier now than it's ever been. Yeah. Uh, so just start building something like, even if it's dumb here, I'll tell you this. The first thing I ever built that was game, like I was learning how to program basic and it was in seventh grade and I built a classroom survey slash dating matchup. Like you're matched up, like give everybody in the class, like this thing, fill it out. And then we're going to match you with the person that you're the most like, like that was the first thing I did. Like that. I, I, I wanted to like provide this experience for other people just mm -hmm. because I like one of the girls, like in the class. <laughs> did, did you have like a hard match every time? No, like if, no, if no. name equals this match I, with Alan Blaine kind of I thing? wasn't, I wasn't brave enough to do that. Uh, <laughs> I wasn't brave enough to do that, but it was like, I wonder if one of the questions will like actually make this happen. You can find ways to do dumb things. Mm. When I was in college, I made an enemy that was like, you know, when they talk about like an enemy that's really like two of this thing in a trench coat or whatever. I made an enemy that was actually that where they would fire a rocket launcher and it would blow them back. And if you, you could like, then they would separate and they were actually two enemies, like totally yeah. dumb, like silly, silly, silly stuff, but just start making it, make things that entertain you, like okay, start showing yeah. off like what you want to do. And, and like, that's, that's how you do it. Right. From, from there, most people that get in the industry will not have a job making the thing that they want to make, not mm -hmm. for a long time. Like mm -hmm. the only job I've had where I was actually doing the thing creatively that I got in the industry to do in the first place was Red Dead. Like that was the game. Like I got, actually really got lucky. I got to make the game that I got in the industry to make 10 years in. And I wasn't the creative lead or anything like that on it, but like that, like I was in college, I'm like, why am I making games? I want to make the greatest Western ever been made. Like that was like a thing that has been on my list for a long time. I got really lucky that I got to do that 
you know, and then since then, it's just about like finding your joy day to day, finding Mm -hmm. a place that's good, finding a workplace that's good, finding things you want to do, but like, like figure out what you want to make. You won't always get to make it. That's fine. I almost never do find ways to fall in love with things that you don't even like all that much. That's a good one. I was lead designer on a skateboarding game. I had never skated in my life prior to that. I learned how to ollie by the time the game shipped because I would do a lot of my thinking about the design and the bug fixing. Like, you know, when you have to take that break to think about like how to fix a bug and get away Mm -hmm. from the computer. I was like skating around the parking garage at Z axis at 10 o'clock at night, thinking about how to debug something, stuff like that. Just like skating in giant ovals, like around the parking garage. And every once in a while, I'd be like, I'm going to try to ollie right now. Oh, I got two inches off the ground. Yes, I got two inches <laughs> off the ground. That ollie was sweet. That's huge, man. For anybody that's never tried to flip their board, man, that's huge. <laughs> that's um, huge. So yeah, like I had to work on a, a motocross game for a while at Z-Axis. Like find the thing about what you're working on. Even if like the core concept isn't like what you want, what you mm-hmm. prefer. If you can't find something to love about it, to really pour your, your heart into, like you're going to have a rough time. Yeah. Like, Find something about it that is just like you can invest in. They feel good about investing in. Totally. That's a good one. That's a good one. Like love the thing and then you can break it down, right? Design right. something, build something off of the thing you love and, right. and see how far that'll take you. And you, right. it'll quickly be apparent if this is what sparks joy and lets yeah. you flourish or maybe there's a different aspect of it. But there's, it's especially like you said today. There's nothing holding you back. Granted, if you have internet and a computer, right, you can that, put something together. That's always the problem, right, is that we assume, we mentally assume a similar level of access that we had. We were coming. And there's a lot more talent in there that even though the level of access has, that the bar has dropped between what you need to be able to do to start, it's still higher that it needs to be. Like there's yeah, a lot of, it, it could there's a lot of talent out there that's uh, totally untapped right now that, that yeah. isn't getting a chance. I'm a fan out there. I'm, again, right, of learning in this world of Fortnite that it even has a creative mode and all these other games around it that I didn't even know about. Like I, I'm learning about Roblox. I'm learning about Dreams. Mm-hmm. Um, Core Manticore is a thing as well. I don't even know what that is. I've heard of all the other stuff we talked about. Manticore, what's that? Core is crazy. I think Core is built off of Unreal. Right. And and it's kind of this middleware, or I'm going to butcher it. Please. Yeah, I'm looking at it right now. Yeah, look, look it up. It has an editor that works off of Unreal that lets you build assets and logic and put it up in the world for other people to consume or even purchase. Right. Is it, am I, am I doing it justice? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I'm wondering what the business, oh, it costs you credits to play. I did to buy credits through them. Okay. Yeah, I just so, look, so, I'm looking at what their actual like business model is. Yeah. It's like UGC, right? Like user generated content. Right. Everybody gets a cut. Of course they get a big cut. Right. And, and, and then more content for them that other people building brings more people into the ecosystem. That's crazy, man. Yeah, man. It is, yeah. So like you said, the barrier of entry is lower given if you have a computer and some internet, man. Or even in this day, you could be on a console. Like the damn grandma's boy vision that I always hated in my heart <laughs> that killed me. It's like, yo, you don't make games on a console with a controller that doesn't right. fucking exist. It's actually, yeah. it's actually coming. Getting there. It's getting, it's coming true. Yeah. Yeah, man. Hey, Al, this has been a pleasure, brother. I'm sorry to have kept you longer. The good thing is you don't work tomorrow. 
I yep. fucking have to work tomorrow. God damn it. Oh, man. But it's all good. This is a blast. This is a pleasure. Yeah. The fact that we've known each other, I get to go back and, and say, hey, we, we shipped Red Dead together. We shipped GTA 5 together. Yep. We got to go to those shit parties and award shows. But I still, to this day, like this shit, I get to learn things about you I didn't even know. And so I love being able to break that <laughs> apart, share that with the rest of the world for their benefit. Sure. Tradition of the show, my friend, you know what it is. If you had a good time falling out of the play area, is there anyone that you would nominate to fall out behind you? Yeah. So if you really want to get an interesting conversation, you uh, could talk to the design lead that hired me and gave me my first job as the Axis. He goes by the name Gordon Bellamy. I don't know if you're familiar oh, with Gordon. Oh, yeah, I know Gordon Bellamy. He's been on a, he's on like high score. Yeah. And, and, a, and a bunch of, a bunch of content. He was, he was on Madden. No, does he do? Yeah, that's where he got his start. That's where he got his start on Madden in the early and, 90s. And now he's yep. like a a professor as well. He's, he's a professor at USC, I believe, now. Yeah. Uh, he was the president of IDGA for quite a while. But yeah, Gordon hired me back in the late 90s. I would love to connect with Gordon. I'm, I feel like I've spoke to him once or twice, but this will give me a chance to dive deeper and, and put some mortar on that relationship. Yep. This is exciting because I would love to pick his brain and be like, what did you see in Alan that yeah. made you give him a chance? I got to um, do it. So number two, number two. Oh, uh, two. Oh, yeah. I got yeah. a second two one. For- I got a second one in case, in case yeah. But Steph Goulet. He is the art director at Drinkbox. On Nobody Saves the World, the Guacamole. Oh, yeah. the, in Toronto. Fantastic. Yeah. I love connecting with my Canadian homies up there. Al, thank you, yep. brother. I'm, I look forward to connecting with these people. Good luck on your GDC presentation. I look forward to watching that and pointing everybody to it on social media and learning about the system on Destiny. Do you have any closing words for the listeners out there before we go? I I had a real great time falling out of the play area, man. This is really great. I don't know that I have any extra words. I think we already said a lot of words. We left it all out there. So that's a good one to hand on. I like to hear that I extracted everything you had to give. (laughs) There's nothing left for you to give, my friend. That's an achievement in my book. I know a bunch of y'all are heavy Destiny players out there. Who out there is not currently in Elden Ring or Horizon and diving into the Witch Queen update? Alan's one of the people I know who's been doing this tech design thing for the longest, and I consider myself very fortunate to be able to call him a peer and a homie and have worked alongside him at the one studio that I've spent the longest time in my career in one place at when I was at Rockstar. I brought so much damn gameplay to life from inception using that scripting API that really up until now, I didn't know the full scope of how much he contributed to that. If I did, man, I should have been more in his ear and at his desk and making up for the past. I try to make amends and get him out on GDC panels. And now he and Anne, another panelist, are two principals doing the damn thing. So at least I can say that I now have a blueprint on where I can go next on my ascent up that ladder of success. Escalator style, to quote the notorious B.I.G. Another note worth calling out is, you know, this is another case of how small this industry can be, where we now live within a short drive of each other. We both had no clue we would both eventually find ourselves up here in Seattle after crossing paths so long ago in San Diego. 
But I mean, depending on who you ask, if you're in games or tech, odds are pretty high that you will bump into each other out here in Seattle, even if it's not what used to be at the annual PAX visit. I'm super hyped to have a discussion with Gordon Bellamy. I know very little about him, and he's definitely an interesting individual that I want to get to know more about. On episode 29 of Out of Play Area, debuting in two weeks after GDC on Monday, March 28th, we'll sit down with another fellow outlaw to the end and a programmer and software engineer and a fellow Full Sail alumni in Jason Yurechka, a lead software engineer at Visual Concepts, who just released WWE 2K22. He's been at all the major players, including Blizzard, EA, Rockstar, Big Huge Games, and we're going to get into his full journey and learn about all the insights he has to offer and more. You know how we do. So make sure to follow us so that you don't miss out on that episode. Thank you for listening, devs. If you found this episode informative, I ask that you pay a link forward to a developer to help grow our listener community. If you're a game developer with a story you think could help a fellow dev out, please go to outofplayarea.com and click on the Calendly link at the top to meet up. Please make sure you get approval from your manager or studio's PR or HR team beforehand. Out of Play Area, the Game Developers Podcast, releases new episodes every other Monday on all the major players, including Spotify, Apple, and Google. Please make sure to follow us to see what developer falls out of the play area next time. I'm your host, John Diaz. Until next time, devs, stay strong, stay true, stay dangerous. Mega Ran. Bring them home. Fight attendants, prepare for takeoff. Captain crew, please take your seats. We are now about to enter the out of play area. Yeah. If you can't reach me, I apologize. Since we out of play, I never compromise. John D, NYC, know we got the vibe. Make sure you hit that follow when you hit subscribe. Out of play area podcast. Out of play. Out of play area podcast. Something for the game devs Stay strong, stay true, and stay dangerous Had to switch the styles for a challenge Best thing out of Harlem since Young Miles Morales A new podcast comes to provide the balance With game dev veterans and rising talents Out of play Welcome to the Out of Play Area Podcast A show by game devs for game devs With no ads, no BS, just the real Welcome to the Out of Play Area